Good morning. It's good to be with you. As has already been uh, mentioned, this is a pretty heavy text this morning, pretty serious, and I appreciate your prayers, and I would encourage you to pray for yourself as well. Uh, we'll be looking at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. I invite you to turn there. Um, as you're doing that, let me just uh, let you know, uh, and I like to talk a little bit about our family, if I do this. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had the opportunity to go to the Ohio State Fair. And my wife and I and our kids, we went back to the Department of Natural Resources area. And it was very interesting. One of the places we entered was a butterfly house. And as soon as we went in, a guide came over and I asked the guide, can you tell me something? What's the difference between a Viceroy butterfly and this next butterfly? And this is a monarch butterfly. And the guide smiled and said, yeah, that's a great question. Here's the difference. On the left, the Viceroy butterfly, that is a very tasty, delectable insect for most bird species. And the problem is, as you can see, they're nearly identical. The monarch butterfly on the right is actually quite poisonous. It's very harmful for, to most birds. And the point is, the black ring crowning that wing, that's the king. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Mother bird speaking to baby birds in the nest, saying, now remember, we're gonna go out hunting for butterflies. Black wing, or black ring on the, the wing, crowning the, the wing, is the king. And get it straight, because not to do so could be very harmful. When um, I was a young kid, I may know what this is. Oh, not just a mushroom. <laughs> this is like the best of the best. These are morels. My father used to take my brothers and me every May, and we would go hunting for these morels. And I still, I was out this last spring. I love going into the woods and hunting for morels. They are so tasty. Right now, my mouth is watering. They're, they're really good. The problem, my dad said, is that there are other mushrooms in the woods as well. And this is a false morel. I don't think it looks like a morel. But you have to be careful because this one is poisonous. This one will harm you. And he taught me how to check for spores and how to break open the stems and look to see which is the true morel. Now, our story today, we're going to continue. And you're there in 2 Peter. Uh, I've entitled this passage from verses 12 to 16, Balaam is in the house, false teacher near you. We have been studying 2 Peter. Peter is addressing the church because he's seeing an increasing inflow, uh, cancerous inflow of false teaching. And so in chapter 1, uh, Pastor Andrew addressed a couple weeks ago, that, or several weeks ago, that we have a wonderful salvation and our salvation, by the grace of God, we've been called to. And not only that, we have the, the ability by the Spirit of God and the Word of God to have the building blocks in our lives to create a strong foundation. And then last week, Pastor David introduced chapter 2, and it's pretty startling. It starts off in verse 1, talking about these false teachers that have secretly come in, teaching, destroying heresies. They're out for devastation. And so we're picking that back up today, and uh, we'll be addressing this first of all, the way of false teachers. It's a, it's a very uh, serious discussion. 
we're, we're going to be looking at. And then we'll be looking at what Peter calls the way of Balaam and what that means. And then briefly talk about verse 15 where it says that they actually forsook the way and what that way means. And uh, there we go. So right off the bat, we're looking at verses 12 to 15, uh, 14. Uh, please follow along as I read. But these, like irrational animals... Creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed. I didn't do that. There we go. My clicker is on its own. Hang on. Will also be destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. Will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Friends, that's a terrible passage. That's a horrible description. But it's an accurate description of what is not just, as Myron said, not just 2,000 years ago, but what the church needs to be alert to today. So as we begin talking about the way of false teachers, um, my apologies. First of all, know this, that they are devoid of principles. There in verse 12, there's a word, it's the word irrational. And I apologize, uh, I'm not sure my technology people, I'm having issues with this. They are devoid of principles, there we go. Irrational, it is the Greek word aloga. And this word, loga, is similar to the word logos. Like in John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. That word means word. And so you have this word, loga, related to the word word. But you also have a prefix here, a. And just like in our English vocabulary, the word a often is a negative. It means no, non, it can be without, and so uh, we have our, world athe our word atheist, right? Means no God. Right here, this word irrational literally means no word. These people are without the word. Now that's a very startling description of false teachers because they are purporting to teach the word and yet they have no word. And being wordless, they have no foundation, no grounds for moral character, no, no foundation for right decision-making, for instructing others. And so the next word that we have describing these false teachers is they live instinctively. They're instinctive animals. They live by their nature, and that's what the word means. They live by their passions. However they feel is how they believe they can act. And there is no other source of authority for them. Uh, Paul, to the church at Ephesus, addresses this. He says to them in, in chapter 2, verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the nature. That's the nature that you and I have been wonderfully saved from. Because without God, without his word, without his spirit, we would be following that kind of lifestyle. And this is descriptive then of the way of false teachers, devoid of principles, and thirdly, they are irreverent. 
The scripture teaches here that they are blasphemers. Pastor David addressed this last week. I won't spend more time on that. But essentially what they're doing is they're taking the word of God, the truth about God and his word, and they're twisting it. They're manipulating it. They're manipulating it for personal gain, for, for, for their own glory. They're manipulating to justify their wicked living. This is the description of false teachers without the word. Secondly, well, let me go on back. Jude also addressing about false teachers says this in verse four. Who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. What they are doing is they're taking a precious truth like grace. And we've been singing about grace. And that grace was showered upon us through Jesus Christ. But they're saying, ha, I'm saved. I've got the grace. Now I can live however I want. That's a false teacher. Jude also says this later, that these people blaspheme all they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning, there's our word, without the word, animals. And they understand that instinctively. They are following their own passions. And then it says this, that they are destructive there in verse 12. They are destroyed in their destruction. Uh, church, let me just say to you that these false teachers, they are intentionally seeking to destroy God's people. They are looking as predators for prey. In their destroying others, though, it says that they themselves will be destroyed. Uh, we use this idiom in English, don't play with fire. Why not? Because we know that those who play with fire might get burnt. That's what we're talking about here. Suffering wrong of, the, of these, it says, they're suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. And Peter uses this word wage. It's the same word he uses later in verse 15. It's, it's that word to earn something, to, to gain it. But instead of gaining something that they really desire, these wrongdoers are actually earning suffering as their wage. The point being, the way of false teachers is painful and it's a way of suffering. Uh, Proverbs 7, 23 says this, as a bird rushes into a snare, probably seeking to capture some viceroy butterfly, as he rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. It's a very serious topic we're looking at today. Well, thirdly, Peter says this about these false teachers, that they counted pleasure to revel in the daytime, they are so depraved. The Bible says that it's at nighttime that people tend to do wrong. Why? Because they want to keep things in secret. But these false teachers have twisted the word of God and manipulated in such a way that they feel confident that they can just openly display their sin. Because, hey, I can prove anything from Scripture. I can live however I want. And it's, it's a depraved way of living. And we need to be careful, friends, because they're among us. Now, this is also detestable. Verse 13, uh, now instead of saying he's like, they're like this, Peter comes out and says, they are spots, and they are blemishes. 
As I was thinking about this, I thought probably most of you stood in front of a mirror this morning. You were looking for spots, blemishes, wrinkles, anything wrong, and you were hoping to fix it, except I was thinking a couple of boys here probably missed the mirror. But uh, the, the point is, on the surface, spots and blemishes is something that's just not right, right? Who would go to a wedding with that kind of a stain? I, I, that's a, just a ridiculous slide. But the point is, spots and blemishes, we know that those aren't right. Peter addresses, or Paul addresses the church at Ephesus. He says this, that he, that's Jesus Christ, might sanctify her, that's the church, having cleansed her, how? By the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, here's our word, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. How is it that the church is purified and cleansed? It's through the word of of God. And so you have here, these are wordless teachers. How in the world can they they, they be a part of this cleansing process? They can't. In fact, they themselves are the spots. Spots and blemishes also have another meaning. And it's below the surface, literally. Jude uses this in in verse 12. It says, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts. Jude is also addressing the topic of false teachers, trying to identify them. And here he uses the same word as spots, but now it's the word hidden reefs. What was Peter's job, his occupation? He was a fisherman. He would have been keenly aware that here is a term that, that it just strikes a special chord in his heart because he knew that you had to, on the water, be careful of hidden rocks, things that were below the surface of the water because coming in contact with them could be disastrous. The same is true in the church. And that's what he's communicating by the Spirit of God. That these people are spots, they are hidden reefs, they are there, and your contact with them could be disastrous. It could be devastating. You could end up seriously hurt. And then it says in verse 13, well, actually verse 1, they've secretly come in among you. Verse 13, they are reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They are deceptive. They are sneaky. It says this, that they are enticing, what kind of people? They're enticing unsteady souls, ungrounded, those without a firm foundation. And the word enticing is another fisherman's term. It is the word to bait. In other words, these false teachers, they're sneakily coming into the church and they're with intention baiting people so that they can destroy their lives. That's very sobering. That's terrible. That is descriptive of the way of false teachers. It gets worse. When they come in and they eat with you and they're sitting down laughing and dining with you, know this, that in their hearts they are lustfully thinking wicked thoughts, immoral thoughts. It says here they have eyes full of adultery 
That's what they're constantly feeding themselves and their minds and their hearts with. It's terrible. Um, I was talking about morels earlier and started to do this. Just my mouth started watering. On Friday, we uh, celebrated Will coming back from uh, drill. He was gone three weeks. And so uh, Carrie asked me to make some steaks. I'm happy to. So grilling some steaks, you know, while grilling steaks, it's happening right now. Uh, The mouth starts to water. These false teachers, it says, they're insatiable for sin. They drool at the thought of sin. When it comes to, to thinking about this wicked activity, oh, they just can't wait. What a horrible, horrible description. And then your, your text says they are trained. But here, it's, I put the word drilled because the word is the same as the word gymnastics, exercised. You, you think of this athlete. This individual has dedicated their lives in order to perfect this, this activity. These who are false teachers have dedicated their lives and they spend waking moments thinking about, practicing. They are going to become skilled at their attempt to have gain. Wow. And by the way, one of the commandments talks about this attempt to get gain. Remember what it is? We don't hear about it very much. Covetousness. This is covetousness. This is their heart. And then Peter says this. They're cursed children. They are cursed children. They're damnable. They're children of Satan, of the enemy. And by the way, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, describes Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he may what? Devour. He's a predator. Don't think that these children will be any different. These children of Satan are going to be looking out to destroy lives. And they are in the church, and that's what Peter's message is. They're here, and you need to be alert. I just put a note here. This is the exact opposite expression of what we find in Genesis chapter 12, where God's covenant family, instead of being cursed children, are blessed. We just sang some precious songs. I, I, I jotted one down like Pastor Kenoyer used to do, just to remind myself. All I have is Christ. Is he enough for you? Is Christ enough? Or is there something else you need? Because he's all I need. He's all you need. He is enough. And to say otherwise is to start to creep into this false teaching. Well, then Peter talks about this from verses 15 and 16, something he calls the way of Balaam. Follow along with me. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Right away, right here in verse 15, there are three things, and I'll just give them to you that talk about what is this way of Balaam. 
One, it's a wrong way. These are people that have forsaken the right way. They're on the wrong way. The way of Balaam is a wrong way. It's a way of gain from wrongdoing. And not just gain, but gain from wrongdoing. It's cheating. It is the way of madness. Interestingly here, the word madness, it literally means out of one's mind or beside oneself. Or we use the word insanity. See, to stand and twist the truth of God and his character is to make God your adversary. And that is totally insane. Well, in the New Testament, Balaam is represented as this full picture of what it means to be a false teacher and what it means to have these treacherous motives. In other words, if you want to see what a false teacher looks like, just check Balaam out. 2 Peter chapter 2, 15 and 16, we've already looked at this. They lo- he loved uh, gain from wrongdoing. Jude says this, Woe to them, for they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished. And then to the churches in uh, Revelation, one of the churches at Pergamum, he sa- it says this, Who hold the teaching or the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And we see a little bit more here that this doctrine of Balaam, this teaching of Balaam, leads God's people into sexual immorality and to idolatry. Can that happen? Yes, it can. Can it happen in the church? Yes, it can. And that's what Peter's intent is. Let the people know, to be alert, to be aware. The New Testament sees Balaam as a bad guy. He's bad. He is a predator. Well, that blew my thinking. I mean, when I first was assigned this pastor, I thought, oh, Balaam, isn't that the cute story of the talking donkey? Well, let's, we'll go with that. I want to invite you to turn to Numbers chapter 22, please. I, I think if you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 130, I believe. And as you're doing that, I'll give you a little bit of a background. To this point, the uh, Israelites had been wandering the wilderness for 40 years. You know that story? They have now come closer to the land of promise. They've already sent out the spies. Moses is leading them. And they're told now that uh, you can go in, but you're going to skirt around the south, around Edom. You're not to touch Edom. And you're going to go around Moab, you're not to touch Moab, and you're going to go around Ammon because you're not to touch them because these, these countries, these people, they're really your distant relatives. In Abraham, you're distantly related, so don't do them any harm. So they come to Edom. Hey, can we uh, cut through your land? They say, no, you can't. So they take the long way around and they go around to the east side of the Jordan River and they're going to follow up north on the king's highway. And they come up past Moab and there's a king there, uh, the king of the Amorites. His name is Sihon. And he says this, uh-huh. I'm going to make a preemptive strike. I'm going to attack these people before they attack me. And he does so to his own doom and destruction. His armies are defeated by the Israelite army. God gives the victory. And so the Israelite armies are traveling further, and Og, King Og of Bashan, up near, just east of the uh, Sea of Galilee, 
He does the same thing. He comes out with his armies. I'm going to destroy these people before they destroy me. And sure enough, he and his armies are defeated. And now after these two battles, the children of Israel and the armies of Israel, they come back just north of the Dead Sea into a place called the Plains of Moab. And they settle there. And that's where we come into our story right now. In Numbers chapter 22, verses 1 through 3, Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak the son of Zippor saw all that that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was in great dread of the people, because they they were many. And Moab was overcome with fear because of the people of Israel. In simple terms, they were terrified, just terrified. And here their king, he needs to come up with some kind of a plan. So his plan we see in verses four through six. Let me go on. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, Pether, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, who is Balaam? Uh, Several commentators uh, reveal that his name really means destroyer. It could be also devourer with the idea of being a glutton. But I was thinking, yeah, if I were gonna have that job, I'd like to have destroyer as my name, right? That's the person you wanna call on, not some lily pad guy. And so he has a name that's pretty powerful, destroyer. What's his job? He's internationally renowned as an oracle who supposedly could speak to the gods, as a seer who supposedly could look into the future, and then also as a sorcerer, he had the power to curse and the power to bless. Interestingly, nowhere in the book of Numbers is he called a prophet. Well, what's his mission? Balaam was hired to curse Israel. Reading Numbers 22 through 24, he kind of left with, well, did he get the job or didn't he? I mean, he kind of failed, didn't he? Well, if you, and you could just make a note, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses three through five, uh, Moses writes this about Balaam. This is after his death. This is years later, but it says this about Balaam, that he was hired by the king of Moab. He was hired. He got his wages. He got paid. And what was he paid for? He was paid to curse Israel. And in Deuteronomy, it says this, that Balaam was cursing Israel, but God was changing that curse into a blessing. Just kind of keep that in mind as we go on. Well, he was cursing a people that were blessed, wasn't he? Back in Genesis chapter 12, we read this, and this is, uh, we've been studying this on Sunday nights, but this is the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, part of it. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God, for his own reasons, 
was choosing a people who didn't deserve it. There's nothing they did to say, God, look at me. He chose a people for his name. He chose a people for his own to have a relationship with. Eventually, he says, I will put my spirit in them. And through these people, he, he, he makes them a conduit, of his, a conduit of his blessing. And friends, today, that's, that's what he's done for us, isn't it? He's called us, people that didn't deserve salvation, people who were broken and lost. And he's, he's making his name great through us, inadequate vessels. Well, we go on. What's Balaam's motive? I want to take some time to go over this because it is financial gain and greed, period. It's covetousness. His motive is, I want more and more. And he is going to do whatever it takes to get more and more. Go back to Numbers chapter 22, verse 7. If you're not there, we're going to spend some more time looking at this passage. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and they gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, lodge here tonight and I'll bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam and God came to Balaam and he said, who are these men with you? Go on. And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning. He said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land. The Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Now something I haven't pointed out yet that was interesting in our preparation for this, if I can get to my next slide. And this may be a little difficult to see, but Balaam lived in Pethor, up in Mesopotamia, close to the, right next to the Euphrates River, 450 miles this wasn't just across a valley or a mountain. When these guys came to him and when he sent them back, we're talking quite a ways. I, in fact, I was so curious, I thought, well, really, what is that today? That's like going from Columbus to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Now, if you took your Google Maps out and you typed in Chattanooga, it would say that it'd take about six and a half hours to drive that. But in my little perverse mind, I thought, well, I'm gonna click the little guy walking. And so I did. And it takes almost six days. That's without a potty break. <laughs> six days straight? There's no way that an entourage from Moab going up to see him were just going to not stop. It probably took at least two weeks. And so to get there and to get back, we're, we're likely talking close to a month's time, right? So we come to the next passage. So once again, Balak sent princes more in number, more honorable than these, and they came to Balaam after their two-week trek, and they said to him, Thus says Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. 
But Balaam answered, and he said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. We're going to stop there a second. That sounds so good. Isn't that a good response? When we look at this life of this man through the lens of what we already have learned through the New Testament, he's evil. This response, you know, if you were to give me a house full of silver and gold, that just didn't just jump off his lips. That came off his lips because it was buried in his heart and he thought about that a lot. He was a covetous man. He was a man greedy for gain. And so when he says, you know, if you give me that, that was already here. He wanted that. And by the way, these houses, this is not your 2,000 square foot house. He's talking about a palace full of silver and gold. He wanted it, a lot of it. But I gotta do what God tells me to do. 19, so you too, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. What more the Lord will say to me? Didn't God already speak? God said, don't go. Balaam is really hoping that he can go back and convince God to change his mind. Verse 20, and God came to Balaam at night and he said to him, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. Oh yeah, now he's gonna get it. So Balaam rose in the morning. He saddled his donkey and he went with the princes of Moab. And then in verse 18 it says this, but God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. And we understand that the angel of the Lord in scripture is a term used often of, of Jesus Christ before his incarnation. The pre-incarnate Christ, it's a Christophany. This angel of the Lord in Joshua is one who received worship. Angels don't receive worship. They say, don't bow to me, bow to God. The angel of the Lord here, God himself is standing in the way and he is angry, really angry. And it says he's his adversary. And that is the Hebrew word, Satan. Guess what English word we get from that? Yeah, that's the word for Satan. And I'm not saying God is Satan, but I'm saying this situation is so serious that God stands as an adversary. He objects to what Balaam's doing. Now, aren't you a little confused? Didn't God just say you could go? I mean, what's going on? Why is he angry? And the answer is found here in some of the language. We go back to verse 12. God said, first of all, to Balaam, you shall not go with them. This expression with them is imahem. And some of the commentators say that this means with them in body and with them in spirit. With them mentally, with the same heart. In other words, when you're not to go imahem, you're not to go, period. Not at all. Don't go. But when we come back to verse 20, God said to Balaam at night and said to him, came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them. But only do what I tell you. This is a different word. This is the word etam. 
meaning in body, physically, but not in spirit, not in heart, not in agreement with them. In other words, you can go in person, but you may not go to fulfill Balak's wishes. So why is God angry? Because it says here in 21, Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and he went with the princes of Moab. God's anger was kindled because he went. This is another word. It's a difficult word to say. It's halak. And it means to walk beside. It is to walk with. And we use it in scriptures. We talk about our our walk with the Lord. We talk about um, the fellowship and communion we have as we walk beside the Lord. Not just in person, but in spirit, in harmony, in agreement with. And that's the word here. That when Balaam rose up and saddled his donkey and he went with this group, he wasn't just going in person. He was going in full agreement with them. He was going to gain that wealth so he, so he wanted to curse Israel. I was thinking, Balaam's lips said no, but his heart said go and curse the Israelites. So God was angry. And then we come to the story. The story of the donkey, the talking donkey. On three separate occasions, the angel of the Lord took his stand and the donkey noticed it. And we won't go into all the story, but you know the donkey moves and he kind of hurts Balaam's leg. And and each of those three times, what does Balaam do? He beats his donkey. And then finally we have this. If I can pull it up. The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And Balaam says, No. This is a very astounding passage. First of all, that God opens the mouth of a donkey and a donkey is speaking in human language. But then to think that without any problem, he answers back, Balaam responds, he, he, he communes and, or he corresponds and talks with this guy, this donkey. He talks twice. It's like, there's, it's not shocking to him. At that moment, the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. He saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed down and he fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I've come out to oppose you. There's the word adversary. Because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me three times. these three times. If she had not turned aside... Surely just now, I would have killed you and let her live. Wow. Balaam, he says, I'm sorry. Now, the angel of the Lord comes to you. You have that incredible demonstration. The angel of the Lord says, I'm in opposition to you. Wouldn't you think you'd just tell your donkey, let's go home? I mean, have another conversation? But Balaam arrives in Moab. He is greedy. He wants that house of wealth. He's greeted by King Balak. 
And on three separate occasions, the king is waiting for this, these curses to come. He takes them to different locations, and each time, Balaam can only give a blessing. And they're beautiful words. Oh, we, I mean, we don't have time to look at it. They're beautiful words, incredible words. But notice this on the third oracle. Before he gives it, it says this. When Balaam saw in chapter 24, 1, that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to look for omens, omens being tricks of the trade, sorcery tricks, whether it's cutting open a liver and whatever. But he set his face toward the wilderness, and Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse and said, and he gives another blessing. Well, this may look like a good thing. He gave up his old ways, and now he's turning to the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord's coming upon him. Isn't that good? John Calvin suggests that the previous omens were just attempts to influence God to fulfill Balak's wishes and to fill Balaam's pockets. See, Balaam's heart was so fixed on gain. He so much wanted those houses of gold and silver. He wanted God to change his mind, and he, he tried his own craft to influence God to do that. And each time, God's like, no. I'm going to bless them. Calvin also continued. He says, Balaam's not now induced by a sincere feeling of goodwill. It's not like he has a change of heart. But he's directed, maybe compelled by the Spirit to speak. You see, this blessing wasn't something that Balaam was really wanting to do. But God took control, and the Spirit spoke. Ultimately, the word of God comes by the Spirit, not by a man. Could it be that we are to find it more amazing that God would open the mouth of this pagan sorcerer, Balaam, than the mouth of his donkey to proclaim truth? I mean, it's easy for us to say, wow, donkey spoke. We should be saying, wow. God used a pagan like Balaam? And that's the irony. If you go back to uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 that we see in verse 12 and then also in verse 16. In verse 12 of 2 Peter chapter 2, we said this, but these like irrational animals, these are the false teachers. These are the prophet, the, 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 the false prophets like a Balaam. Like animals that cannot speak words. They're wordless. They were supposed to be preaching and teaching the word of God, but they're wordless. And then in 16, it says this, a speechless donkey spoke with a human voice. An animal spoke words like a human. You see the irony in that? It's actually quite sad. His method, seduction and treachery. It's possible, it's very difficult, but it's possible to read Numbers chapter 22 to 24 and to think that somehow Balaam is a prophet, he lost his way, he was restored, and he delivers the word of God, yay, everything is good. Except you have Numbers 25, and you also have Numbers 31, 16. See, in Numbers 25, it starts off this way. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab, 
These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and they bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Yoked himself? Those are covenantal marriage terms. God was furious. How is it then that these people, having experienced victory, just right at the threshold of entering the promised land, will come to this point in their lives? Well, at the end of Numbers, we have this in, in um, chapter 31, verse 16. Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. Balaam, greedy for gain, unable to change the, the, the word of God and the mind of God, he devilishly crafted a plan to destroy God's people. He knew. He himself couldn't do anything, but if he was to have this reward, he'd have to come up with something himself. And that's exactly what he did. He came up with a plot, and he pulls King Balak aside, and he says, listen, I can't do anything, but here's what you can do. What a sinister, evil plot. Balaam's doctrine lurks among us still. Hearts that are discontent with God's promises, his provisions, with God himself, they seek for more. He isn't enough. They're driven by greed and lust, enslaved to their natural passions. They twist the truth they deceive others into idolatry and sexual immorality to their own destruction. This is the way of Balaam. This is Peter's message that Balaam is in the house of God. And we're to be supremely alert, keeping our steps on the right way. Our time is really gone, but let me just point this number, this third point to you. And if you have an outline there, it's, it's there. The right way. See, 2.15 says this, that they forsook the right way to follow the way of Balaam. There is a right way. It's a way of truth. Jesus Christ said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Jesus' way, his way, is the right way. And I listed some different uh, descriptions of the right way. It's a heavenly way, it's a humble way, it's a holy way, it's an honorable way. Those are all true. They're not exhaustive, and they weren't meant to be exhaustive. What I wanted to do here was to show you enough of the right way so that you can say, you know what? That's the way I'm following, and praise the Lord. But it might not be. It may be that you're sitting here listening to the message saying, boy, that was really convicting. I find myself thinking more along the way of Balaam. The greed, God's just not been satisfying to me. I'm not happy. And I would say to you, dear friends, if, if you're in that camp where you're walking with God, praise the Lord. But you still have to listen to the message, to be alert, because there are those in the family of God who may fall prey if you don't, because see, there are predators among us. In the church of God, Throughout the world, there are predators. And you have to be alert. 
You want to protect your family, protect others, your friends, protect the church. Because these false teachers, they're seeking to devour. You may be here and you just sat under this message and you heard and, and the Spirit of God saying, this is you. You're the Balaam. You've been saying with your lips one thing, but we know in your heart, you just want more. And you're thinking thoughts that are evil. And God says, repent. And it might be here that you're here and you're saying, boy, I'm more like those Israelites. I've known victory in battle, but I've been camped here a while. And um, just wondering what's next. And maybe you have been led in that time where you're just kind of resting to uh, tiptoe and dabble into some things you shouldn't be dabbling, whether it's pornography, immorality, bad decisions. Friends, there's hope for everyone here. And everyone here needs to hear. I, 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 I take this message personally because I sat in a church in a different state like this and um, I was one of those that was uh, unstable. And I was made prey by a predator as a teenager. And you know, when you're in that position, you feel like you're in darkness. You feel like there's nobody you can talk to. It's a shameful position. Isn't God so good to rescue us? What does it say in chapter two? I think it's verse nine that God is able to rescue the godly out of their trials and tribulations. He can do that. You just have to speak up, talk to an authority. There's no shame. And, and, and church, we just all need to be vigilant. We need to be very keen that we don't run into these spots, these hidden reefs. We need to help guard one another Pray for one another. That's my message on the way of Balaam. Let me close in prayer. Father, you're such a gracious God. We've looked at your word, and this is serious business. And I pray for each heart here today. I pray for you to show us what good news really means. And where there's forgiveness needed, Lord, shower forgiveness and grace and mercy. Where brokenness is needed, break hearts. God, where there's rebellion, penetrate that heart, bring them to their knees. We pray for you to purify your church, Lord to protect your church. Father, you know the heartache that some are experiencing. Would you be their deliverer? Would you show them your love? Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that we have a sure foundation in your word and in you. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.